This is Fix It. I'm Kevin. And I'm Nishant. Today, we're fixing how you think about cybersecurity with Chris J. Hufnagel. Professor Hufnagel helps students from different disciplinary perspectives understand the effects of law on technology. He's the author of the Federal Trade Commission's Privacy Law and Policy, and he holds dual appointments in Information and in the School of Law, where he's the Professor of Law in Residence. In addition to all that, Chris is also an elected member of the American Law Institute. And finally, if you didn't have enough going on, he advises emerging technology companies as counsel to Gunderson Detmer LLP. Fixers, this is yet another episode with one of my professors. I had the pleasure of taking Professor Hufnagel's Cybersecurity in Context course, and boy, did I learn a lot. I don't know many professors that can manage a course with brilliant computer scientists and tech weenies like myself, but he was able to do it and he brought us all together to get through a lot of content. We won't go over the whole course here, but if you're ever in grad school, take a cybersecurity course. Welcome to the show, Professor. Thank you so much for having me. Professor, we're recording this episode on December 18th, 2020, in the wake of news of one of the biggest hacks on the US government in recent history. So before we dive deeper into a more abstract conversation on how we should be thinking about cybersecurity, can you make the problem really concrete here and just tell us and the listeners what's going on and how it relates to broader issues in cyberland? It's not easy to describe in um, a quick way. It, you know, in essence, if you, if you think about information sharing and creating a defensive shield for your properties, there is a tension between having a very large defensive apparatus, right? If you have a huge defensive apparatus, uh, you have more information, you get to see more attacks, um, you can recognize things that smaller entities will not see. But the kind of flip side of that is that if you have that huge defensive shield, if someone gets under it, they get under, they get into everyone's business. And so we have a few of these in the world broadly. So um, one example is that, as I understand it, most email today goes from one Gmail account to another Gmail account. So that's fantastic, right? That means that Google can have this fantastically large aperture on who is sending phishing emails, who's getting them and so on. But then if you get into that system, you have an unparalleled ability to interfere with the people in it. And so this is this tension between size of aperture and the vulnerability that begins to accrue with the ability to see so much and act on so much. And so, Professor, there's a lot floating around right now about who did this, whether it should be regarded as an official attack. And we know there's still a lot of information out there. But generally, if you were in the situation room with President-elect Biden right now, what would be two to three pieces of advice you'd give to him in this scenario? So Kevin, I know you're torturing me now because that's kind of my standard essay exam. Suppose that you're advising the current president uh, given options menu, it, explain the upsides and downsides of so-and-so. And we really are at this moment where uh, we can rethink these things because there was such a dramatic policy change between the President's Obama and the President's Trump it, it, um, administrations. 
So this is something I wasn't allowed to say in class. The, the real issue here is, uh, is, is this an attack or not? Is a political question, it's not a legal question. But you see, as a law professor, I have to tell you, it's a legal question. And the legal uh, contours are, are these factors, right? And we went over in class about, about whether it causes physical destruction, whether people die, whether there's uh, poisoning of markets, you know, the different philosoph philosophical ways of thinking about whether something is conflict or whether it's just something else. It's more like vandalism or in this case, um, espionage. What happened with this? I mean, this to me is, is continues in a long vein of espionage. And as much as um, this event is painful and unprecedented, we have, many nations have caused painful and unprecedented cyber intrusions to each other. And they haven't resulted in people dying. The underlying motivation is understanding more about the world. We could go a lot deeper on this. I'll just stop there because I'll talk forever. That's perfect. And uh, yeah, uh, I wish I could hack into the Berkeley system and amend my exam answer, but we'll save that for another semester. So given how complex and political all of this is, when you think about private and public sec sector entities in general, are there some barriers that you think typically come up when we talk about this idea of cybersecurity? I feel like most of our listeners have probably been in some meeting where some person came on a screen and said, hey, don't click on these links and we need to protect cybersecurity. But why does this keep happening? What are these barriers to stopping folks like Target from leaking all of our data out? These systems become impossibly complex. And you know this if you're a programmer, as your programs become more complex, more and more edge cases cause problems, more and more uh, complexity causes bugs that are hard to anticipate and can be emergent. Now, I, I think it, I'm, I'm at great risk commenting at, at this moment on, on, uh, on, on this issue, but you know, we use FireEye at Cal. And so um, the whole University of California system uses a FireEye appliance. Now, why? Really, it's phishing. It's, it's that you know, even amongst technically sophisticated people, we fall for phishing. And there's a certain group of people who will always kind of click on those links over and over. So eventually we decide, let's put in this network monitoring device and it's gonna catch the phished URLs as they come across our gateway. Great. But then that intervention introduces these new ways into your system, right? So you have a, 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 an appliance on your, on, your, um, um, uh, on your network that can look at encrypted traffic um, that in itself imposes uh, its own problems. So there isn't a clear training solution to this problem. We know people will continue clicking on the links, but then if you take a purely technical approach, you then open yourself up to other problems that are harder harder to see, but may in the end be worse. 
Professor, you'd mentioned earlier that there's this tension between having a really large defensive mechanism covering a large swath of information, in addition to the complexity that you just outlined, which presents some key barriers to public and private institutions setting up an effective cybersecurity strategy. What are you doing to help people get ahead of the problem that they might face if they under-address cybersecurity? What are you doing to help companies out? Well, um, companies come along in several different ways. I tend to think of them as evolving through levels of maturity. So many of the clients I work with are very small. They do not have a chief information security officer, a chief security officer. They tend to have people who might care and know something about security. Some don't, on the other hand. Sometimes we'll come across uh, uh, companies that don't have anybody in-house. But essentially what happens with these companies is you bring them through levels of maturity where their security systems become more complex and considered. Now, here's the problem. There literally is not enough people to do this. We need millions of people in roles who can anticipate the types of problems that arise and think about mitigations. So the main thing I do on a day-to-day basis is I teach cybersecurity and I now teach it year round. So I uh, have fall and spring classes. And what's so exciting about that is, is students are always, um, you know, students are anxious about what their future is gonna be. What are they gonna do? One of the neat things about the privacy and security route is that there are so many jobs and they are jobs in which you can you can do a great amount of good. You can help people not only deliver the products and services they want to deliver, um, but think through more carefully about the types of problems that can arise from those activities. Professor, we've got a lot of fixers here who regrettably aren't chief information officers or chief security officers, but merely just want to make sure their credit card's safe and that their passwords are secure. If you had a few New Year's resolutions, which folks will hear this most likely in 2021. So folks, you can still go back and amend your New Year's resolutions to adopt these. But Professor, what would you recommend as a few just really easy best practices for folks? Most important thing to do now, I think, is to uh, use a, a, a password locker. They're increasingly are built, actually built into browsers. I think Chrome has one. I know Safari has one built in, but you can also buy one for not a lot of money. And the reason why is that humans cannot remember their passwords. So you end up doing one of two things. You end up either having kind of a high value password and a low value one. And you know you use that low value one on the New York Times and the high value one on your bank. Or you do a strategy where you have a high value password and then you append something to it. So I have a high value password. And then at the end, I write NY times. Well, in breach after breach, what we've seen is that companies are storing passwords in plain text, even though we, over a decade more, uh, we've known that that is not a best practice. And once your password gets out, and that pattern is understood, the attacker can look at your accounts and just say, okay, I'm going to log into your Citibank. I'm going to steal your payroll or, or whatever. So that password locker gives you the ability to generate very strong passwords for every site. And then you never even, you never have to even remember them because they just get injected into your applications um, and, and so on. So I, I think that is the best investment people can make on an individual uh, um, basis. I'd otherwise say multi-factor. 
But the problem with multi-factor is that it, it, it's implemented in several different ways. In some ways it's implemented, it's not secure enough for the underlying thing being secured. So for instance, multi-factor based on SMS messages, it's only worth about $200 of protection. And what I found is that even banks are using SMS-based multi-factor instead of something uh, more secure. Well, Professor, those are two great common sense approaches that shouldn't cost our listeners too much. So if you're thinking about Christmas gifts, listeners, please make sure to go out and get a 1Password or Dashlane subscription today. Professor, thank you so much for joining the show. Here's to not getting hacked in 2021. I, I drink to that. Thanks again to Professor Hufnagel, and thank you listeners for tuning in. Are there folks in your communities who are solving interesting problems with innovative solutions? Be sure to let us know on Twitter using hashtag Fixer and tweeting at us at fix underscore cast. And be sure to spread the word. See you next time, Fixer.